For many communities around the world, this is the beginning of the school year. And for others, the school year is in full swing. Then some communities are sitting out the rest of the year 2020, with plans to start again in 2021. But right now, no matter when the school bell is supposed to ring, children, teachers, and parents on nearly every continent are adapting to a whole new reality in education. Pandemics are not new to the human story, but never before have so many children, particularly the world's most vulnerable children, been forced to stay away from their school grounds, their school teachers, and their school mates. And never before have so many communities been challenged to stimulate and nurture children from afar. This is Learning to Overcome, a podcast produced by Matter Unlimited in partnership with Imaginable Futures and UNICEF. I'm Gwen Tompkins. Long before the pandemic, our guests have championed remote or distance learning around the world. Sal Khan is the founder of Khan Academy, which creates free apps, videos, and interactive experiences that supplement traditional learning in the U.S. and around the world. Sal Khan joins us from Mountain View, California. Welcome. Great to be here. And Iman Lapumba heads marketing and communication for Ubongo, an organization based in Tanzania that offers free educational and entertaining programs to television and radio stations across Africa, as well as free apps for mobile devices. Iman Lapumba joins us from Dar es Salaam in Tanzania. Thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. Your organizations are uniquely poised to rise to the challenge of the pandemic. Khan Academy and Ubongo have been working in the realm of remote learning for years, and now remote learning is exactly what the world needs right now. Has the pandemic expanded your priorities? And if so, how have your priorities expanded? I'm going to start with you, Iman Lupumba. Yeah, the pandemic has definitely deepened our priorities and reinforced the need for organizations such as ourselves. So like you said, we create educational entertainment delivered through mass media technologies for children across Africa. And for the majority of countries in Africa, when schools closed, there was no plan to support remote learning or at-home learning for children. So we were really the key partners or some of the key partners in helping address this challenge by offering our content for free to anyone who wanted it across the continent and beyond. I love free. Sal Khan, have your priorities expanded during this time? Oh, yeah. You know, as a not-for-profit, our mission, free world-class education for anyone, anywhere, The way that we've always tried to deliver on that, as you mentioned, has been online. You know, people know us for our videos, but it's also most of our resources are actually on the exercise and software and teacher dashboard side. But to be clear, you know, we've never viewed as online only or distance learning as somehow optimal or better than uh, what kids would get in a classroom. I'm the first to always say that if I had to pick between an amazing teacher and a physical environment versus the best technology on earth, I would always pick the teacher in a physical environment (laughs) for my own kids or anyone else's children. And pre-COVID, I would say that the ideal is amazing technology in service to uh, a great teacher, in service to a great in-person classroom experience. Can technology really unlock human-to-human interaction? Uh, But, you know, we started realizing that we had a major role to play. In about February, I started getting letters from a teacher, and actually one teacher in particular in South Korea, who was telling us that he was using Khan Academy to essentially keep his kids learning uh, when 
uh, South Korea had closed down their schools. And you know, in February, it feels like a lifetime ago. I it remember does. thinking like, wow, how wild is that? A whole country has shut down its schools. Uh, and then it was only a couple of weeks later that it started to become clear that uh, out here in California, that that was becoming a reality. And, you know, that I remember that weekend, it was one of those moments where we kind of looked right and looked left. And I, I you know, I remember telling our team, I, I think this is us because <laughs> people are going to need something that uh, is accessible, that's free, that goes across many subjects and grades, uh, that works well with a kind of a teacher, that a teacher can monitor students and assign things, but at the same time, students and families could use it on their own. So we just started stress testing our servers. We started running webinars for parents and teachers on how do you do this type of quarantine schooling or distance learning? We started putting out lesson plans and uh, daily schedules just so parents could understand uh, how to structure uh, kids' days depending on on their age. And you know, once the, the school closure started hitting around the world, and it was really just that next week, we saw our traffic. You know, in normal time periods, we see about 30 million minutes per day of learning on Khan Academy. We saw that go to about 80, 85 million learning minutes per day. So uh, almost 3x of of normal and our registrations were uh, 10x. And what we've been trying to do since then, as it's become increasingly clear, you know, I, I think one of the issues as people have been just treating this as, oh, well, this is just a one month crisis or this is just for the next two months, but clearly it's been longer and it's likely to be a good bit longer. Uh, probably through the this whole school year, you know, we're actually in the process of accelerating a lot of science content. We've always had math from pre-K through early college, uh, but we're also, we've created these things called get ready for grade level courses uh, that help kids and teachers identify their gaps before grade level. Cause you could imagine with kids not being in school, a lot of kids are atrophying, so to speak. Also anything I'm talking about, uh, parents can use. It's all free. It's all nonprofit. Uh, and then, uh, you know, we're just trying to give a clearer perspective on what adequate or what solid distance learning can look like. You know, so many schools around the world have been so concerned about whether they can even open or how can they open that they haven't actually had a lot of thought to think about how to actually do the the distance learning. Exactly. And that's exactly what we want to talk about, what you envision, what both of you envision in terms of an optimal situation for students who are learning remotely. Because no matter what countries we're talking about around the world, this pandemic has exposed all manner of inequities, particularly with regard to access to the Internet or um, access to other resources that might be helpful and meaningful to a child's learning environment. I was particularly surprised, Iman Lupumba, when I saw on the on the Ubongo site that that there's a statistic here that says 82% of students in sub-Saharan Africa don't have access to the internet. Unpack that figure for us. So I think the stat is it's it's something that we're not surprised with, but it, there's also a lot of depth and variability within it. When we say do not have access to internet, it may mean only has access to a certain amount of data for maybe WhatsApp and Facebook and direct messaging, but it, the bandwidth would not get them to, you know, t- watch an online video. And others, it's no data at all, or they're borrowing phones from other people. So there's a lot of variability in terms of needs on ground. But what we do know is that there are enough people who do have access to either TV, to radio, or to simple feature phones. And those are the platforms that we focus on when we're trying to support Um, learning from home. And also, I think Sal said something really important in terms of, you know, our solutions are not necessarily trying to um, replace teachers. And our role is to help kids to learn how to learn, help kids to stay engaged and stimulated, 
and hopefully through partnerships with other people within the ecosystem of a child, create um, an environment that supports whole child learning and development. But we can't say that we're replacing schools or teachers or we can fulfill like a child's entire educational learning needs. So what can Ubongo do, Iman Lupumba, um, for the students in sub-Saharan Africa, given the challenges of the pandemic, given the limitations of technology there? So this has been something that we have known from the beginning of our existence, right? Um, Ubongo was founded in 2013 in Dar es Salaam, Tanzania, by a group of educators, innovators, and artists who wanted to bring about a new way of learning for children in Tanzania and East Africa. And in particular, they were frustrated by a lot of this discourse around ed tech being heavily focused on online internet-based learning. And they wanted to kind of find a way to create content and use the technologies that families actually have access to within our context of Africa to deliver top quality edutainment and learning to children. So it's interesting that when the pandemic hit, there was this emphasis on this is going to be a text moment, but particularly around online learning. And that's true for some parts of the world. But for us um, in sub-Saharan Africa, we knew that internet-based online learning would only be accessible to um, a very kind of small group of children. And often enough, children who already have uh, more resources than others whose schools Uh, would probably have rolled out, you know, an at-home learning curriculum, would have systems in place to support continued learning. And that's what we've seen even on the ground here in Dar es Salaam. I know parents whose children have been affected by the pandemic because schools have closed, but it's been business as usual in terms of they wake up in the morning and they go on Skype or Zoom and they take their lessons. Their schedules haven't really changed. But then there are other parents whose schools closed with very little information and with very little support as to what was next. And, and they were and parents were, you know, overnight teachers at home with no real guidance as to how to go about it. Um, and then there are other parents who are somewhere in the middle where, for example, I know one family where the teachers printed out all the homework for the rest of the semester and handed it over to the parents and was like, good luck. Or other schools where they started WhatsApp groups and would send daily activities. So we actually recently did market research in Tanzania, and we found that 95% of um, the families that were surveyed in that research said that they did not have any single alternative to Bongo when it comes to supporting learning, and that within the past two months, our content had become even more relevant than ever before um, in their lives. So... While we do frame ourselves as supporting and a supplemental resource to support learning, at this moment in time, in many ways, we are a primary resource for many families. Okay, so Sal Khan, what about the children who don't have access to the Internet? They don't have the online access that uh, Khan Academy normally relies on. Uh, What can Khan Academy do for for those kids? You know, this the COVID crisis uh, I, I think it's it's spot on. It's just going to drive a lot more inequity. And this is the fact around the world. And the way I see it, you know, Khan Academy can be accessed on a cell phone or even a, a fairly low cost device. Uh, but even that, it could be hard for folks with data sensitive plans. Uh, there are offline versions of Khan Academy. Uh, there's uh, something called Khan Academy Lite. Uh, there's folks who've 
Any non-commercial use of Khan Academy, we love folks to use it. People have broadcasted over the stations what Iman is describing. But, you know, I think this is one of those scenarios that I, I told some schools, uh, teachers out here, you know, this isn't going to be the year that we're going to accelerate kids learning. This is the year that we just want to make sure we don't lose kids. You know, I wish we, we could say it in a more optimistic way. So, Salcom, what what is a reasonable plan for retaining or even reattracting kids, um, as many kids as possible? I think we just use whatever technologies are available. I love the broadcast idea and what Obongo is doing. You know, I, I think t- if teachers can even get on a phone with kids or text them uh, just to make sure they're engaged, you know, no matter what you do, even if kids have the best bandwidth and they're able to get on a Zoom and Khan Academy and do everything, if they're not engaged, there's not going to be a lot of learning. So we've heard some good examples of teachers around the world, a couple of school districts that have made a point of calling kids up even for two, three minutes, but having that one-on-one conversation makes a huge difference because right now school in whatever way that the kids get connected to school, whether it's through TV, whether it's through Khan Academy, whether it's through a video conference or, or a phone call or a text message, it's actually for a lot of kids, their main lifeline to a community, to socialization, to friends, to caring adult mentors that are outside their direct family. You know, I think priority number one is just maintaining that connection, maintaining that engagement, and then trying to get as much academic material out as possible. But if kids are disengaged, I think it's going to be really, really tough. So can you both talk about important moments or breakthroughs or, or epiphanies, you know, that you experienced in your own childhood uh, school days and how how that moment could be replicated virtually. Yeah, you know, as we were talking about earlier, I remember, I don't remember many days from when I was six or seven years old, but I remember when Miss Lunda, you know, said, hey, Sal, let's talk to you a little bit. Hey, I realize you really like this type of thing. Would you want to work more on this? Or uh, when Miss Roussel in fourth grade said, hey, it looks like you like drawing. How about we do some more drawing projects? And I remember... Those conversations, I, I you know, I can't tell you many other things that I remember from, you know, 1984, <laughs> 1985. Um, I remember the Olympics. <laughs> but, you know, and that tells you how important those moments were in your life, because I remember those were the moments where an adult outside of my family, you know, looked at me and treated me as another human being and kind of taught me to believe in myself. And I don't think you can underestimate how powerful that is. And Iman Lapumba, can Ubango also create more personal experiences, even within the context of what you all do on television and radio? Is that possible? Yes, definitely. I mean, I think, though, our approach is a little bit, a slightly bit different. You know, a big part of our goal and our mission through our programming is to actually encourage family and, and the ecosystem around the child to participate and take an active role in learning. And this has been a really key part of our strategy even be, before COVID, um, especially when it comes to younger children, you know, that three to six year old age group in Africa majority of kids under five don't attend pre-primary and are at home, but a lot of caregivers and parents in particular are not necessarily well-versed or knowledgeable about the importance of early childhood development and stimulation and, you know, engaging young learners. In fact, a lot of parents believe that learning starts within the school, so they really miss that developmental window because most children start school around the age of seven, the first grade. So that developmental window is missed um, for the majority of children in Africa. So it's been really important for us to kind of champion the idea of 
parents and caregivers and older siblings are children's first teachers. So what has come out come from that during COVID is we have been creating a lot more content. So we, we launched a new radio program that basically promotes at-home learning as a family. So, you know, kids listen to songs and, and, and storylines and activities and are prompted to then go offline and practice and, and do certain activities and games with their parents. And that's been a, a best practice for us that we have adapted throughout our, our different mediums that in many ways we see our platform and our content as a launching point, a launching pad for deeper learning and engagement offline um, between children and, and their caregivers, whether it's their older siblings or teachers or parents themselves. So yeah, so that's really kind of our approach when it comes to de- creating more personalized and also more interactive experiences. It's really prompting for that to happen offline. Sal Khan, I, I noticed that Khan Academy reports that more than half of children in the U.S. between the ages of two and five have, quote, no access to high-quality preschool experiences and resources at home. It, what does that mean? It does, it does, is that something similar to what uh, Iman Lupumba is talking about? Before I had kids, I, I, I would have been even, you know, I'm somewhat skeptical of how much happens at three or four or five. Uh, you know, I have three kids now and just observing them directly. And obviously now with Khan Academy Kids, we've been doing a lot of work and research with early learners. And it's arguably the most important developmental stage. And what we've seen with the Khan Academy Kids app, which is reading, writing, math, social, emotional learning, uh, is if, uh, you know, we did a study in the US with the low income population, but this is a population that at age four, is already testing in the 25th, 30th percentile. Uh, if they were able to at least get some of the, you know, access to an app like Khan Academy Kids, uh, over the course of a six-week period, we were able to close the gap between them and their middle-class peers in uh, the tests of English and language arts and, and other things. Ideally, even when you have these te- technological tools, it's done in the lap of a grandparent or next to a sibling, so you, it's not devoid of... Uh, human contact. But we're seeing if kids are even able to get 20 minutes, 30 minutes a day, it makes a huge, huge difference. And it's great if people can access Khan Academy Kids, but it really is as simple as, you know, someone in their family reading uh, to them or with them uh, for, you know, even 20 minutes a day makes a huge difference on a lot of levels. For anything, I actually worry in some of the parts of the more affluent parts of the world where they are doing, you know, distance learning all in, that they're transplanting a seven or eight hour school day onto Zoom. And that's mind numbing. I think any of us who are adults, you know, now we're spending many hours of meetings on video conference. If that's all you do for even four or five hours, um, your brain is kind of fried by the end of that day. So what is Khan Academy's answer to online fatigue? How do you keep your brain unfried? You know, this is from the beginning of Khan Academy. We've always viewed the teacher use case is a very important one because once again, it's all about engagement. We have efficacy studies. If kids engage, uh, they grow and actually they grow quite fast. And in support of that engagement, we want to have, you know, kids can get exercises, feedback, they can get videos, but the single most important 
form of motivation and engagement is the teacher in the classroom. And so what we try to do, and we've always done this, is uh, provide dashboards for teachers so that they can keep track of what students learn, haven't learned, to what degree are, are they spending time, not spending time. Uh, teachers can make assignments. And so everything we do, we try to give that element to it. Uh, now, obviously, in distance learning, that helps teachers, even if a teacher is several miles away from the student to be able to understand what they're working on, uh, where they're strong, where they're weak, where they're engaged and where they're not. And then ideally, if teachers are able to get some form of synchronous session with the students uh, in a lot of the world where people do have Internet access, that is getting on video conference with the students. Uh, but it could just be a phone call or even a text message. Uh, then those can be the, the moments where, based on the data, the teachers can dive a little bit deeper and do kind of a small group type of intervention. And so, Iman Lupumba, like how, how can the programs that Ubongo support, how can those programs help teachers make these kinds of personal observations of students? You know, when a student turns a little corner behaviorally or neurologically or physically? So for us in particular, we don't necessarily work within the context of schools. We work within the context of homes and families. And we have um, had a couple of independent uh, studies done on the effectiveness of our content and in particular the effectiveness of our um, preschool edutainment show Achille and Me. And so in, in these studies a group of, of children were put um, in a classroom and watched I think it was like about an hour um, of content each day for a span of a month and then the other group of kids were, were put in a classroom and they were watching something else. And the kids who watched our shows improved significantly when it came to numeracy, preliteracy, social emotional skills, as well as overall school readiness. And we have done a bunch of other studies just around like the effectiveness of our content. And so the emerging insights from all this research is, one, as Sal said, it's first of, the most important thing, at least in the beginning, is getting kids engaged. So creating content that's highly relevant um, for young kids, it's a lot of repetition as well. And then making sure that the content has been shown over and over again. So when it comes to assessing milestones, the ways in which I think we our content can facilitate teachers and, and maybe more engaged parents is each episode has a learning outcome. And in particular for younger learners, it's very clear what that learning outcome is. There may be a segment on learning particular words or another segment on a very particular emotion because it's important for kids to first be able to identify emotions in, in their journey when they're developing their social emotional skills or a very particular uh, numerical concept like counting to five. And yet, Iman Lapumba, there are countless practical considerations and challenges that you all must be entertaining about now. Uh, for instance, my understanding is that Ubongo operates in six languages across Africa. But, you know, as we all know, there are so many more than six languages that are being spoken in Africa. So has the pandemic in any way encouraged you all to expand the number of languages that you all teach in or speak in so that you can communicate directly to kids who are at home and not in school? Yeah, no. So language adaptation of our shows is a very critical part of our strategy. And definitely the pandemic has increased the need for that. And maybe let me explain the format of the shows a little bit. These are 
So for the Achille and Me age group, Achille and Me is 24 to 26 minutes, and it's in segments. It's categorized by segments. So there's a literacy segment, there's a numeracy, there's a social-emotional segment, etc. And then for the older kids, there's Ubongo Kids, which is an episodic show where there's a particular theme and storyline for each episode. So the challenge when it comes to adapting, because we don't dub our content, we adapt it to different languages, is... If you're teaching educational concepts, different countries and different languages shift how things are taught. You know, so it's a bit of a more strenuous process. So in certain African languages, for example, people count differently. Or if you're saying A for Apple in the English version of, a, of the show and you've animated A for Apple, it has to look very different when you're doing A for something else in another language. So there are a lot of intricacies when it comes to adapting educational content um, to different languages and specifically local languages that have their own intricacies. And so it's a very long process. And unfortunately, with the pandemic, a lot of production has also had to slow down, you know, just to make sure that people are safe. So it's, it's like we're at this tension where we recognize and we want to create even more content in more local languages, but it's also having to maintain the integrity of the process while also dealing with the realities of of what it means to produce content during a pandemic. And so, uh, Sal Khan, can you offer any observations for Iman Lipumba about how to deal with language issues with regard to the distance learning that you all provide, not only across Africa, but around the world? Yeah, it's definitely, I, I empathize with what Iman is describing. It's not a simple thing by any measure. And, you know, the more that we've gotten into it, the more I've appreciated all of the complexities. We have 46 translation projects around the world at various stages of development. And you can imagine, you know, you can't do direct translation. A lot of uh, even figures of speech just don't translate well. And then obviously certain languages are right to left, bi-directional and all of these types of things. And uh, so it's quite involved. I mean, especially when you're doing things like math, even the use of decimals and commas, et cetera, et cetera, it's quite uh, complex. So, you know, what we try to do is a bit of a, a federated model where, uh, you know, each of these 46 projects are fairly independent. We give them our platform and there's a long list of features that everyone's asking for. We can we only have the resources to give them the ones that we think are going to be the the most high yield. Uh, you know, Khan Academy, for example, there are translation projects into languages like Arabic, but Arabic is clearly a uh, right to left language, and so our software platform can't support that. So today in Arabic, you can there are videos from Khan Academy in Arabic, but there are not the exercises in the way that you can get in a lot of the left to right languages. And, you know, even in Arabic, as I've learned, uh, you know, there's many dialects of Arabic and it's not a monolith. So you have to be very sensitive to how people, you know, perceive things from one region to another. So it's, it's very complex, but, you know, it's, it's worth doing. And, and, you know, this kind of stuff is even more important today. Some of our efforts and some of, we call them advocates, the people who are doing the work. A lot of them are volunteers uh, doing the work in the various geographies. Some of them are just, you know, one or two people trying to create uh, academic content for their country. So if anyone's listening, I highly encourage to support these folks. 
Sal Khan, you mentioned earlier that since the pandemic began, you've seen the amount of time that children and teachers are spending with your videos and other learning tools as having expanded in some instances three times more, in some instances 10 times more in terms of time spent. And you're a big organization, but not a huge organization. Now, how is that stressing what you all are able to do? Yeah, you can imagine still are a reasonably small organization. Our budget's the budget of a, maybe a large high school. And so to try to keep up with global demand, it's not been a, a trivial thing, uh, you know, just to keep up our server costs, uh, then to accelerate a whole series of content. We're primarily philanthropically supported. So I've definitely had uh, a bigger hat in hand <laughs> making the rounds, uh, trying to convince philanthropists, corporations in every geography that this is a very important time, a very important, I would argue even pre-COVID or post-COVID, a very important social return on investment. Uh, right now, it's you know one of the top three concerns for the globe. I think that's why we're talking about it. You know, There's the COVID itself, there's the economic fallout, and then there's this academic fallout that... If we're not careful, this crisis could be a catastrophe. Okay, so my last question then to you all is whether there's anything about this crisis that has been a surprise to you, that has revealed insights about the state of education or online learning that you didn't necessarily realize. And how does that affect the, the future and how you all plan to teach kids in remote ways, online ways? Um, Yvonne Lapumba, let's start with you. So I'm kind of echoing back to, I think, something that I said earlier when we first started talking is there's been a heavy investment when it comes to ed tech in online resources and online platforms. And this pandemic has almost brought about a resurgence or a re-evaluation of the importance of mass media technologies, of TV, of radio, of simple feature phones and mobile as tools and, and platforms to which remote learning or distance learning can be delivered. And so I just see and I hope that there will be an increase in investment, investment and effort in supporting and pushing for those types of technologies that people have more access to. And then also just being um, something that I also mentioned earlier that I think is really, really important is as more and more children are engaged with technology and are online, I think we need to come up with you know, new approaches to what is the relationship with technology. Technology should be something that prompts kids to engage with the world around them, to have offline experiences with each other or their caregivers, and not necessarily to have you know, an eight-hour Zoom call in certain contexts or watch TV for four hours a day. And in many ways, maybe this pandemic and kids being at home in an idealistic way a perspective is an opportunity for us to really allow and create space for children to re-engage with the world around them. And, and Sal Khan? You know, what's inspiring is to see everyone around the world, just whatever their own circumstances, just doing what they can to support others. So if there's a silver lining behind this, I think it's some of that energy. I know governments, local philanthropy, NGOs, corporations around the world are doing what's right. And I'm hoping that that spirit uh, continues so that we can get more kids access to more learning and support more families. Thank you so very much. Sal Khan is the founder of Khan Academy, and he joined us from Mountain View, California. Thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. 
and Iman Lapumba heads marketing and communication for Ubongo. She joined us from Dar es Salaam, Tanzania. So nice to have you with us. Thank you, Glenn. This is awesome. Thanks for listening to Learning to Overcome. Join us for our next episode, Academics Aren't Enough. Why social emotional learning is crucial, especially during COVID-19 with Robert Jenkins, Chief of Education at UNICEF and Leslie Udwin, founder of Think Equal. 